was working late on my half Torah When I heard a knock on my bedroom door I opened it up and to my surprise There was a werewolf standing there with glowing gold eyes He said tomorrow my son you will be a man Hello Podwalkers and welcome to the Goblin Lore Podcast I'm your host, Joe Redman. You can find me on Twitter at Lorthos, that's L-O-R-E-Thos. And I am joined, as always, by one of my lovely co-hosts, who will introduce himself in just a minute. But before we do that, I am going to ask our question of the day, which is, what is something that you are rationally afraid of? So I'll go first. I'll say right off the bat, it's clowns. I can't. I can't do clowns. I watched it when I was like seven, Stephen King's It with uh, Tim Curry as Pennywise, the the cl- ghost clown thing. Can't do it. I I just I I hate them. Sorry out the, to to any of you uh, uh, comedic Americans out there, as as I know that you prefer to be called. Right. Well, on on that note, now I have to follow that. Uh, I am Alex Newman, found on Twitter at Mel underscore chronicler and uh i I, i'm gonna go you know with something else i'm gonna say scorpions oh um and and you know i think a lot of people are a little eh but i realized like i'm not a big fan of spiders but i realized i have a i am more irrationally i am more afraid of scorpions when a a friend and i uh, were having dinner the other day and and because the server you know the, the the service was so good we were done super early and we're like well this kind of sucks we wanted to hang out and now dinner's done so we were over in uh in, in the west end over here in st louis park uh, minnesota and th- there's a pet shop over there so we started to, decided to go to petco and just wander around and that particular petco has some like i can't remember what they call them but like untraditional pet section and so we're like looking at these things and like the tarantula was what was freaking my friend out and i'm like you know what i could deal with that tarantula i need to take two steps back because that's a scorpion right above it oh no. and just you know wander around this little cage just this live scorpion is like no just no so i learned that yeah i, I put I'm putting scorpions above spiders that's yeah we we all have to you know rank our arachnids at some point in our lives and and i i think that you learned an important lesson that day yeah scorpions scorpions are uh are, are pretty scary I, I will admit yeah it's it's that stinger now see <laughs> that's freaks me out that's why it though was so awful for me because pennywise spoilers pennywise becomes a clown spider thing too so it's even worse it's just mix of the worst possible things all terrible speaking of arachnids so things with uh i think eight eyes i think they all have like eight legs and eight eyes right that sounds right i'm gonna go with that (laughs) yeah sure we are obviously talking uh about uh something spooky today this is our special halloween spooky season episode and uh, and as one of my favorite podcasters, uh, Benito Serino of the Apocrypals podcast says, uh, it is time for spookums and haints. And I absolutely uh, adore Halloween and all of the, you know, ghostly, uh, spiritly uh, times. For, for, for me, it's, it's as uh, UPS would say, I... 
what recognize can Brown do for you. I recognize Halloween. I just don't observe it. Like ah. I understand that there, for some people it's a big deal, and that is wonderful. For me, I, I just I don't care. Like my my work. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Joe. Like this is just one of the cool things that they do at my my office um, on Halloween. Different departments will just do stuff in their areas. You know, uh, my department's going to be an uh, apple orchard this year. Last year oh. we were like a haunted petting zoo or something. <laughs> but then um, people can bring their kids and and their family to come and trick or treat at the company. And like this is a oh, tradition wow. that that goes way back to. Um, I actually we worked for a much smaller company that was bought out by this big company. Well, it was more of a merger. When you take the CEO of the small company, make him the CEO of the big company, you call it a merger. Um, but so this is a tradition that has carried for, you know, all the way forward. And like I was doing this when I was a kid. And, and so now my sister has kids. And so every year she comes to the, she comes to work and I get to go around the building with her and her kids and, talk to my coworkers and people and see where, what areas did what, and you know, what were the best places. And, and, and so it, it's a lot of fun to do, but, uh, that is awesome. Yeah. So that's, and that's another thing where like, you know, my, my previous department would do the haunted house and then they'd raise money to buy bikes for, for toys for tots. And so lots of people are doing lots of things for Halloween. And so for me, Halloween has always been, yeah, you go take care of that and I'll just cover the workload. I'll stay back and make sure the jobs get done because you are having fun and you're doing something cool that brings joy to people. Y'all go do that. It's not for me, but y'all take care of it. And so that's, you know, I, I definitely recognize, but I don't observe. Halloween. That's fair. That's fair. That's that's a very uh, measured take of, of yours and I appreciate it. I will say I am disappointed as a soon-to-be 29-year-old uh, adult person that um you know it's not considered socially acceptable for me to trick-or-treat anymore um i i'm not i'm a little bit serious with when i say that and i have may or may not have talked to mrs lorthos about for my 30th birthday which will also be my golden birthday uh to get people together and actually go adult trick-or-treating i think that would be funny as i'll get out um <laughs> But, you know, so so there is definitely a little less enthusiasm on my part for Halloween on the actual day than than there could be. But I love spooky season because it is a good excuse to, like, read ghost stories and, like, watch movies like uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas or Hocus Pocus or, you know, just, just some movies that, you know, do kind of get a little bit into the supernatural and the dark. Um, you know, specifically, like, I, I love... Uh, that this is, you know, we're getting up to Samhain, which is the old Wiccan um, uh, sort of observation of of the time when the barrier between the spirit world and our world is the thinnest, um, and and that's why ghosts and ghouls come out at this time of year. It's re I I just love all that sort of mythology behind it. I guess is what I'm saying. It's it's very fun for me in that regard. But we are here to talk about other spooky things. Uh, particularly something that I, I think is is possibly one of the creepier things that's happening in real life. Uh, and that is uh, the, not to sound conspiracy theoristy, but the advent or the, I guess, sort of continuation of the development of a big brother state 
in the U.S. and and the world in general, but specifically in the U.S. Uh, and we'll be talking about that as it relates to Memnarch and his Panopticon on Mirrodin. So, so you know, to, to segue from Halloween and, and talk about these topics, um, I'm just curious on, on your impression, Joe. Do you think it more likely to find uh, a kid dressed as Memnarch for Halloween or an uh, Amazon Alexa? What do you think would be scarier? Actually? Oh, what would be what would be more likely is the Alexa. What would be scarier is also the Alexa. Okay. No, that's fair. <laughs> I, I mean, think... I, I did once go to an anime convention where someone was, you know, cosplaying as Flo from, no, which no was really. awesome. Someone else was cosplaying as a can of Red Bull, which was mildly confusing. <laughs> hey, uh, conventions and, and Red yeah. Bull go hand in hand. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think Alexa's probably somewhere right in between Flow and Red Bull, a can of Red Bull. But anyway, <laughs> no, yeah, we we will get into Alexa, that is for sure. And uh, and I've I've definitely seen cosplayers dressed as iPhones, which will also come up in this episode. That is also for sure. Yep. Um, let's start kind of with Memnark. We talked about Memnark in the past. Uh, I know when we did our Goblin profile episode on Slowbad. Uh, we sort of touched on Memnark and, and how he relates to the plot of uh, the Mirrodin cycle and then eventually uh, Scars of Mirrodin block as well uh, a little yeah. bit. He'd, he'd been dead by then, but he sort of set yeah. the stage for a lot of that to happen. Yeah, and and I, I think this will be a good time to kind of go back too because we were talking about that from the, the point of view of sort of Glissa and and slow bad story but there's a lot of sort of details of what memnark was doing that i think are both relevant to this topic and also like nice to kind of go back to this this story and build on this topic yeah absolutely yeah and so memnark um originally i guess his first appearance in the story was in odyssey uh where he showed up as this hyper powerful artifact called the mirari um essentially he was like uh, a satellite probe created by Karn, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to scout out planes throughout the multiverse and sort of just like get a sense of what's going on. Because Karn, after the apocalypse and after he ascended, you know, just decided to traipse around the multiverse and sort of figure out what's what. And so Memnar yeah, as, as has the Mirari, as you do when you're an all powerful planeswalker. Yeah. Like every story with a planeswalker sparking, they're just like, I'm going to peace for some millennia. Right. See y'all. And then they're just gone. We're just going to see what's what. We're just going to see what's going on over here. And Karn, being the uh, smart artificer that he was, decided, I'll just, you know, leave this thing on on Dominaria so that I can keep tabs on it. Nothing will go wrong. Things went wrong. (laughs) So we won't get into all that. But essentially, the Mirari hyper-powerful artifact, lots of stuff that it did to screw up Dominaria essentially set the stage for the great mending and the time spiral block and all that stuff. Karn at the end of the onslaught block recovered the Mirari, took it back to Mirrodin and converted it to a living creature, a a living golem uh, called Memnark. And so Memnark was uh, this, this sort of, leader he was he was i guess you know the lieutenant essentially to karn he became the leader of the ur golems on mm-hmm. mirrodin when and, mirrodin was just a flat 
geometrically perfect plane. And kind of a caretaker was was kind of my understanding of his, of his role. A little bit of a, a gardener, sort of curator, like yes. caretaker of this place. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And it it was uh yeah he was he was called the uh, warden of Galdrun. That was Kern's castle. Fantastic name. Um, but yeah, it, really, it was the Orgolems and the Blinkmoths, and that's it. Um, and it was the Blinkmoths actually that first sort of caught Memnarch's eye to think like, oh, there is something more possible on Mirden, then called Argentum. Um, there's something possible that's more than just geometric perfection. Maybe we can bring real life here. And so with Karn out of the picture at that moment, he renamed uh, Argentum Mirrodin after his own previous existence as the Mirari. Um, and then using the Urgolems, he sort of he terraformed the whole plane. He, he created the environments that we now know as the Oxida Mountains or the Dark Slick Sea, uh, the Mephidros Swamps, uh, the Tangle Forest, and the razor grass plains, the razor field plains. I don't remember exactly which one it is, but they created the entire environment of the world. And then once that had happened, Memnarch destroyed the other Orgolems uh, and then began to create soul traps, these devices that took beings from other planes, brought them to Mirrodin and sort of trapped their essence there. Essentially an artifact-based version of old pre-revisionist timey-wimey uh, planeswalker summoning of creatures where they literally pulled creatures from other planes. And so that hap kept happening for centuries. He kept stealing people from other planes. And um, eventually, you know, there was so much going on. And Memnarch, you know, as, as mentioned, had destroyed all the other Urgolems, all his other peers. And so he realized that stuff was going to get out of control without you know, some major intervention. And he tried to do that sort of solo for a while. It obviously is a huge burden. So what he did is uh, he created this sort of base of operations in Mirrodin's core called the Panopticon. Uh, and using that and using a um, sort of a, flu a fluid that he gleaned from refining the Blink Moths, uh, it, he created Blink Moth Serum, which expanded his consciousness uh, to be able to tap into this sort of surveillance system that he'd created with the Panopticon and, and kind of keep watch on everything throughout the plane of Mirrodin at any given time. So think uh, of, you know, extremely large room with wall-to-wall -wall and floor-to-ceiling TV screens so that's a big part of of kind of his I don't want to say descent, but you know, and and you you start to add, and this is a whole other story with 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 Mirrodin, but you start to add life, and then all this weird stuff is happening, and then this is one of those like bad ideas beget bad ideas become beget bad ideas. I mean, and, and maybe not necessarily, but it's just one thing starts to the next to the next to the next, and now we're here. I mean, and I think that is 
maybe something you can compare to the real life analog when we get to that. Whereas door is one of those things that I have no idea where this expression comes from, but it's, it's one of those where the, it's just built one brick at a time. Like mm. it wasn't designed to be this way, but as you add this piece, then you need to add this piece. And pretty soon you need to smooth the whole thing out and start building another layer. And now the, this is what you have. Right. His, his goal went from this, you know, sort of small concept of, oh, well, what if we can bring life to this world to, oh, well, now this is kind of a problem, so I've got to do this thing to solve it to, oh, well, that created this new problem, so now I've got to do this to solve it. And it just, yeah, like you're saying, snowballed way out of control. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that's without even mentioning the spot of Phyrexian oil that uh, that started corrupting Mirrodin that Karn had accidentally brought to the plane that sort of um, festered as mycosynth uh, and, and really infected the, the entire core of the plane. That's without mentioning, um, you know, the growing madness that Memnarch was developing as a result of using the mind-altering Blink Moth Serum. I mean, like, all of this started <laughs> unraveling. Yeah, and his whole thing with the the Ascension Web, which we talked about in, in the Slow Bed episode, where he was gonna try to you know take a Planeswalker spark for himself, and there's all sorts of things going on. But um, yeah, kind of that that central concept is, ta- and, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened with the Panopticon during you know the the second Mirrodin block with the rise of New Phyrexia, but that's a little bit less relevant to what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it's it's just this this idea that then he had to, because of all of these things that had been done, he had to take it upon himself to be build this web to, or to build this information center and take control of it. I mean, and like use blink moth serum to expand his consciousness, you know, all Muad'Dim style to, to do this <laughs> thing so that he could take care of everything. Right, right. And so, yeah, the the Panopticon directly connected to the eyes of these metal artifact creature minions, the Mir. So for those of you that thought the Mir, M-Y-R, were just these cute little things that just happened to be wandering around Mirrodin, oh, no, no, they are watching everything you do in, in Mirrodin. Um, and, you know, the way that he would then sort of act on these uh, on, on the things that he witnessed and and saw were uh, one one of the ways at least were the use of levelers, the the large artifact creatures that um, raised Glissa's entire village to the ground as a child and and slaughtered all of her people and and you know um, so he would he would use those to sort of I guess call bits of the environment or bits of the population that were becoming problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. and it's and it's a that's a very blue philosophy too. Is you know, oh, we're we're doing this to see what happens, well, sort of thing. And to some degree, well, I suppose green is more of a natural process. If it was happening naturally, then you just let it happen. Sure. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt here. No. I just realized I was trying to make a Dune reference, and that's Muad'Dib. Yes, yes. Muad'Dib is an actual real life thing. So, <laughs> I just want to set that right. Muad'Dib. Yes. From Dune. Pa- Paul Muad'Dib. Yes. I yes. controls the spice. I controls the universe. That's the one. Thank you, Doomcat. Um, <laughs> we will link to Doomcat in the show notes because that's, because because that's what we do. We bring you relevant memes from like 15 years ago. 
So yeah, I mean that's the central idea of of Memnarch and his information web. Um, and and you did touch on briefly, Alex, in in the Scars of Mirrodin block, um, Jingataxius, the the blue aligned Phyrexian Praetor, has sort of hijacked it, and um, you know is is sort of taking on a similar role as what Memnarch did, controlling the flow of information throughout the plane and sort of trying to keep his eyes on on everything at all times and and you know gain as much knowledge as possible mm-hmm. um you know we do see a little bit of that in some of the cards uh that happened in that block uh such as was it thirst for knowledge i think it's thirst for knowledge is no uh, that's no. original mirrodin block i apologize mirrodin. there's also um literally serum visions yeah serum visions which gives you information about your cards and yeah and and it it i mean just looking at the art it obviously wasn't him well yeah, it's from fifth dawn but i think i think that was referencing it was it was referencing the same blink moth serum yep um and yeah, in, I mean, it, in one of the well, later sets it actually does show a, a rendering of memnarch which mm, is cool. yeah was that was that the uh modern masters one yeah i think so Yep, one of the later one of the yeah. master sets. Yep. Yeah, and and then you had stuff with the other with the blink moth things. Like there was, I know blink moth powder. Yep, is being you know a, a super like Johnny Jenny type player. <laughs> blink moth powder, which if it's in your opening hand, you can just get a free mulligan. But it's right. a mad rock. Like that's informationy. Informationy and sort of precognitive almost. Like yeah. because it doesn't have to be your official starting hand, you get a a peek at what a a starting hand would look like. Yeah, you yeah. You, you get to like minority report it. Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's essentially what the Panopticon is in Magic: The Gathering. And I first learned about this when playing and and you know reading um Mirrodin as a kid back in gosh this would have been fifth grade for me I think um and so you know I thought like oh that's a really bizarre and kind of creepy idea that that he's watching everything you do and he's got this big plan to to you know I don't know have total control and and steal ultimate power for himself eventually like and there's only one person in charge of all this too like that was all a really creepy idea to me um and so it really caught my eye Alex and and this is something that I shared with both you and Hobbs in our uh in our cast DM uh it caught my eye when I saw this Washington Post article uh that describes how more than 400 United States police departments have been quietly working with Amazon to access footage from local residents' ring video doorbells. And so is this, is this something you've seen on, on people's houses lately? Uh, not really, but I don't think I, I quite get the same view of, of <laughs> houses that, that uh, Mailman Joe does. Yeah, that's true. So I, I would have to estimate that... It, it, if I'm being conservative about it, it would maybe be 60% of the houses I deliver to maybe probably more have these video doorbells and you listening to this might have one where it's sort of a, you know, instead of your traditional little box, that's about the size and shape of, of your finger. And then it's got the little button or like a, you know, a circle and it's just got the little button in the middle that you give bing and it's a doorbell. It is a, uh, almost 
kind of looks like the size of one of those remote control when you had like remote control stereos it's kind of the size of that remote not your tv remote but smaller but it's got a button that's the doorbell and then there's clearly a camera embedded in it as well and so there's amazon ring there is oh gosh there are all sorts of these uh, out there now uh the there is simply safe has one um I don't even remember all of these. And there are all sorts of different varieties as well. Um, Some include floodlights. Some include a a home security kit on top of just the video doorbell. But the thing that really bugged me about this, uh, I guess the two things that really bugged me about this are, one, when I deliver mail, I notice that many of these um, sort of around the camera or around the button slightly lights up anytime I walk up to the door and drop in the mail. And then as soon as I start walking away, it dims off. And so it's clearly motion activated and like watching whoever or whatever comes up to the door. Right. Um, And then it's that element of police departments across the U S are getting access to this. And so this is where we get into this idea of the Panopticon, um, which is a real life concept. Uh, you know, I dug in, dug into this after after finding out this this Business Insider or Washington Post article, and and we'll link to a Business Insider post that sort of goes through a uh, it compiles a couple articles on this that are really insightful. Um, but the Panopticon is a concept that goes way back to what the 1600s, 1700s. Um, <laughs> And it, it started in prisons. It was the main idea. Um, kind of the idea of this, um, it's, it's often used as a social experiment. One of these, you know, looking at what would happen with the, you know, ubiquitous mass surveillance and things. And, um, but the, the, the concept is it's a, it's a prison with jailers in the middle um, and the, the prisoners on the outside arranged in a way where the jailers can see out from the middle but the prisoners can't see in. And so the jailers can see every, you know, from the middle, the, the, the grand total of everyone in the middle can see everyone on the outside at all times. But because the people on the outside can't see in, um, they must, they have to assume that they're being watched at all times, even if the tower is actually empty, because they have no way to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and said so this, this goes back to, I, I think you're right with the 1700s. I know you, you mentioned this to me that, uh, Foucault, uh, philosopher as we would say a modern philosopher, cause he, he's only a couple hundred years old, um, was, you know, this, this was a topic that he discussed. Yeah. He, he wrote a really, uh, long essay, um, called discipline and punish where he talked about, um, the panopticon in, in one chapter of it and, and, um, so your description is dead on um the the original idea is architecture where yeah there's like a central observance place and around it is a a rotunda a circular area so there's no chance for prisoners to hide or conceal their what they're doing um for uh, actually a really good nerd reference is guardians of the galaxy when they get caught in space prison and uh there's that central guard tower and all of the cells on, are around the ring, uh, around the outside, all the way up. Um, 
but yeah, then then Foucault talks about this, and I think it's really fascinating that Foucault doesn't actually condemn the idea. He he explores it. Um, he talks about how it is used to control the behavior of people because, like you said, the prisoners can't see if anyone's actually watching them, and so they aren't able to then sort of modulate their behavior to know that. Um, and so there is this this sense of always being watched, and so their behavior is then conditioned in a certain way to to assume that they're always being watched. And, and Foucault does say, like, you know, sometimes that's a good thing. Like, then it brings out, you know, certain, in certain situations, it brings out the best in people. If they think they're being watched, then they won't do certain bad things. However, you know, he puts that in contrast with the idea of personal liberty, where you should somewhat have a right to privacy. Um, you know, we might argue that in a prison setting that you lose some of that privilege, maybe, but there is still, you know, in in certainly in more personal life, private life, you do have some of that right. Um, and so I I think it's it's it, we really get into a, a ethical question here, a moral question, you know, where it's it, it does kind of lend itself to if we're gonna boil it down to a very um unnuanced admittedly unnuanced idea of black and white where it's great you know social good versus individual liberty Mm -hmm. yeah and and this comes to uh, a situation too where i was talking about you know building things one brick at a time as you start to establish a system you can end up with something that looks like this and then the and then if if every step along the way seemed justified you know, but, but you don't like the end result. Like, is there something that was wrong somewhere along the way or, you know, and it creates a lot of these, these questions. And I do want to say we haven't referenced slippery slope, but I want to mention that that actually is a logical fallacy. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, The, the idea of that being this thing is okay, except that this will, that encourage us to take another step and another step and another step. And that one is wrong mm-hmm. is actually uh, is kind of what the, the slippery slope is saying. Usually the people who are referencing it don't actually think that thing is okay, but they're not talking about the thing. They're talking about something else. And basically whatever you're trying to reference something else, when you're talking about topic a and you're trying to reference topic B that you're pretty much, that's a logical fallacy at some point somewhere there because you're not actually talking about the thing. Um, but in this context, you know, we're, we're actually talking about decisions that are looking at, you know, if you build these security systems, um, you know, you talk about it in the context of a prison, if we're putting it into a prison because, you know, this is supposed to be a place in society where, um, people are put after committing crimes, do they lose some of this? But then what happens to them when they lose that? And then is this short-term good behavior creating a long-term benefit or is this not, is this creating more, is this creating harm? We do get in that question of, of whether or not it serves, uh, you know, whether, whether or not it serves the purpose or whether, you know, it's it's sort of the ends justify the means question of, okay, at what cost are we going to do this thing? Does it give us this, this short term 
goal of having them be nice in prison or are we then maybe socializing them and then therefore you know socializing uh, uh other people in other certain ways to act in you know maybe we're repressing certain behaviors and then that gets problematic maybe it's just a, a a moral infringement on on social or on personal liberty and individuality um you know, there's a lot of questions with that. And I, I do appreciate that Foucault doesn't take a stand on that because I, I think there are some elements of this that are good. You know, let's start with, with what Ring and these video doorbells were originally created to do. They were just supposed to have it be, you know, I, my, I a homeowner, want to know who is coming up to my front door so that I can feel secure about that even if i'm not at home that is a perfectly reasonable desire and and as somebody who has recently bought a home i understand that feeling you know in the first week or so i couldn't sleep at night because i have anxiety uh, about a or i i guess ptsd about a string of break-ins i had to deal with uh, a long time ago um you know that have really kind of left me shook a bit um so I was having trouble sleeping at night and I would hear a noise and I would creep downstairs with my softball bat in my hand and just like peek out the curtains and it was nothing. It was a breeze like, you know, so something like that. I can understand that urge to want to feel like you have control over that realm and and to want to feel like you can always see it and go, okay, it is safe. My mind's at ease. Right. That's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then we get into this thing where a, you know, uh, you know, we, we sort of get into this next step where the police department is now requesting access to these things. And okay, so the idea there is, I, you know, we as, as a, the entity that is dedicated to preserving order and social stability and, and law and justice in your area we want to know you know say there's a high or not not a high speed chase but say say a child gets abducted on your street for instance maybe one of these cameras captured an angle of the car's license plate and now we can track that car and now we can recover that child that's the idea there right so again perfectly reasonable it's that's a very you know, white sort of, uh, you know, in terms of, of the magic color pie, that's a very white ideal of we are going to collectively use the information we have available to, you know, preserve the greater good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and where the discussion really becomes more difficult, nuanced, deep, problematic, fraught. fraught with things, all sorts of words. Um, is in both circumstances the you know talking about what prison is supposed to be for and what the police force is supposed to be for um, and you end up in circumstances where they are not serving those purposes right. there are there are either in a, in specific communities are not being treated equally or specific you know ideas and things are, are not being treated equally and then that starts to become, questions of you know a loss of of liberty not just privacy but potentially 
liberty is is and and, and issues of of discrimination and these diff- tools being used these security tools that are supposed to make your home safer being used to do just the opposite right and so then you have that question of okay when are they watching on the camera you know when and and i will say so just to break down exactly um what the washington post reported and and other investigations have reported this um Law enforcement agencies have partnered with Amazon to gain access to an online portal showing a map of ring video doorbells in their neighborhood. Um, the portal allows police to figure out which cameras in a certain area may have captured surveillance footage for which auth- authorities need to request permission from homeowners to access. So there, that gives the purpose, the original purpose of the idea. And I will say, okay, in a lot of these cases, the authorities need to request permission from each homeowner to access it. That's mm-hmm. good. Right. That that gives that personal ability to refuse. And Ring has said that users have a choice when police request their footage and it doesn't support programs where recipients are required to share surveillance footage in exchange for a free device. However, some police departments have offered residents discounts on Ring cameras or free Ring cameras uh, and encourage them to download the crime reporting app Neighbors on their phones and for in exchange for doing these things they are required to give access to the security footage and that is in the contracts the fine print the things that we all click through extremely quickly when we are you know going through it and i do the same thing um so this is where we get into the this is where it goes from being okay the purpose is right to but now the means are becoming a little bit questionable where yes Mm -hmm. this can be used at whim in some cases and who knows what what, you know what in any given moment that'll be used for like you said there have been plenty of incidents over the recent years and and many years but especially have finally come to light and gotten more publicity where there have been uh, will benevolently say questionable motives by authorities to discriminate or to target specific people. And this could in theory give more, uh, you know, more power, you know, not, not more authority necessarily, but more literal power to those, to that uh, agency or that force to monitor everything. Mm-hmm. And and that's and that is troubling, you know. That is very on the verge of of George Orwell's nineteen eighty four, you know. Um, you know, we've even seen this too with with uh, you know, like my phone just turned on and and started talking to me. You know, it it is trying to be helpful. It thought it heard the key phrase of what I was asking, but uh, you know, it's it's listening, and that's yeah. not always the greatest thing. I'm sure you've had conversations where. You've been mentioning like, um, I could really go for tamales right now. You open up Facebook or whatever, and all of a sudden you see an ad next to your your timeline for tamale restaurant. You're like, no, that's really weirdly coincidental. Then you Mm -hmm. open up a new, you know, you open up Twitter and you get a suggested ad for coincidences. You know, like you just, there is something, you know, and they have, they've discussed this, that iPhones especially do tend to have open microphones. 
Yeah, and one of the things with the iPhones too, uh, they have an internal battery, so you can't even remove the battery to turn off <laughs> that open microphone <laughs> that I have sitting next to my bed when I sleep because it's also my alarm to wake me up for work. Right. Well, and and that's and that's a great point too. That or that gets into a great point of how ubiquitous this technology is. Mm-hmm. Right. Your your phone is your computer, is your alarm clock, is your communication device it's my watch because i don't like things on my wrist it's your map yeah and because it's in my pocket i don't have room for a pocket watch anymore mm-hmm. i mean yeah it, it's so ubiquitous that these things that could normally i think be reined in by just general behavioral patterns of like okay i'm not going to use you know uh, say somebody tapped into my landline phone well, okay, I'm, I don't use that. You know, we don't have one actually, yeah. so you can't tap into it. So just by virtue of like, I don't use that that much, uh, and I don't use it while I'm out. Uh, you know, or at least there's significantly less damage that can be done than with something that is with you all the time and serves like ten to twenty different purposes in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, something else, I, you know, similarly, the Alexa Google Home situation. Um, where they have, where they, that do sound like conspiracy theorists right now. People and, and re- researchers and reporters have documented that the microphones do tend to be open and do tend to listen to what you're saying and whole conversations uh, sometimes find their way into uh, Google storage, you know, cloud storage facilities. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knows what they're used for or who sees them or hears them, yeah. but they're there. Yeah. And and that has a as a tangent as, you know, both the this massive corporation is holding on to that for no apparent purpose, and that right. has its own issues. But you also have things like net secure, you know, web electronic security is is only reliable most of the time. At some point, you know, at, at any given time, someone's breaking into something. And so the more random information that's just recorded, and even if it's not being used, it's just there that someone could take it. And like, what happens if some hacker steals, you know, millions of hours worth of Google Home conversation recordings? Right. What type of personal information can be mined from that? Right. And, and, and yeah. We're, we're not even saying, you know, stuff nearly like, you know, uh, kidnapping or blackmail, you know, dramatic stuff like that. It's, it's, yeah. it can be just mundane stuff like you, you know, your partner is uh, applying for a bank loan and mm-hmm. needs your social security number for it. Well, well you just gave it to her and, and now Alexa has it. Yeah, and even more subtle than that, just personal information about the things you like can be used to identify you to various things. I mean, and like mm-hmm. this is how, uh, working in the financial industry, I get a lot of training about how social engineering works, where someone trying to steal someone's identity doesn't come right up and say, what's your social security number and when were you born? They try to, they'll get little pieces of information that can get them access to more information. Um, there's a reason years and years ago when Netflix first started their their streaming service, like they were trying to optimize their technology for recommendations. Mm-hmm. And so they held two contests where they took view, uh, user data of, of what they viewed, expunged 
everything personal. Literally, the only thing that was there was user 1564333 has watched these shows and movies. Um, I can't remember if there's rating information there or not, but they, that's all they get, would give these people. And they had to stop doing that when the second time they did it, somebody took that data, mapped it to Facebook, and were able to identify 40% of those Netflix users simply based on what they had watched on Netflix and what they said in their Facebook profiles that they liked, the movies and shows that they liked. Wow. And it's like just that right there, they could take Netflix viewing data, identify it to specific people on Facebook. Now they have access to, you know, little some data here and there, and like they, they can start to use this to triangulate into other things. And that's based generally how identity theft. I mean, there's also the, you know, just go into a database and steal a bunch of social security numbers and bank accounts. Like that happens too. But that is only a portion of it. That's right. That's, that is the easiest to grok, but it's definitely not yeah. the most common. Yeah. It's, there is a lot more, especially these days, a lot more information about people available everywhere. And if you can start to parse that, I mean, and we've got computers that are getting better and better at parsing data. You can start to build complete pictures of people and start to build into information that lets you, steal identities i mean a lot of people's you know secret um when when they have to do you know secret questions and things a lot of that stuff comes out of people's personal lives the things that they like um relatively mundane questions about you know places where they've lived or things that they've done activities that they enjoy family members that they have and all of those things are stuff people post about on facebook every day yep one well, and, and that reminds me of those uh things that come across twitter where they're you were just thinking of those two weren't you yep yep where they're like oh tell me about your high school mascot you know and it's like people will just respond to it and just be like yeah my high school mascot was this and like because we just want to participate but there is like one of the most common you know password reset questions in the book like yeah you know, or, or, oh, what was your first pet and its name? Or what yeah. was the make and model of your first, you know, like all this very obvious stuff. So th that's yeah. even that. But then you have the very like blase. I mean, and we live in a hyper capitalist society where everyone is trying to sell you something. Every company is trying to sell you something at any given moment. Uh, ads are everywhere. Um, but, but just like things, you know, uh, this is, this is another documented thing is, uh, the GPS in, in smartphones tracks sort of the places that you go to very frequently, and those tend to be the ads that show up on your social media or in your emails or whatever, and that data does get farmed out to places, you know, by Google or Apple or whatever, that they can say, oh, this is, um, you know, this this is the... the Joe goes to Target every single day, which I do because of work. But like, okay, well, now we, you know, we at Target know that. And so we are going to offer Joe these coupons, which will get his business here. And it's very blase and boring, but it's a little bit nefarious, you know? Yeah. Well, do you remember the early days of Amazon when Amazon had specific targeted ads to people based on what they had per their, their purchase? Yes. And there was enough of a blowback that they had to change that. Yes. 
And it's, and it all comes down to, and this is, and this is the thing too is, and, and this is, I guess, where it differs from Memnarch specifically, because Memnarch was doing all of his surveillance very consciously. There was one person who Mm -hmm. was watching everyone distinctly and there's no, we are not claiming on this, on this podcast that there is someone secretly, that there is a, a capital D capital S deep state watching you right now. One, one deep state guy. Uh, yeah. the, the Illuminati chair is not sitting there taking notes on you, uh, faithful Podwalker, and, and what you're doing. But, you know, it is these algorithms in place, these, these things that are built into what our, our technology-infused world is now that sort of are just learning and growing out of control. And this is very, I think, very reminiscent of you know say the phyrexian glistening oil and how it started taking something that was originally a really good idea to help us live society more efficiently and it's really corrupting it into something that's almost a a parody of itself you know to where there is there is a whole bunch of my personal information sitting on some google uh, server in siberia for no reason you know, for and and not necessarily for no reason, but just because it can, just for the sole reason that it can. You know, these it's these algorithms that are are taking this stuff and changing, and and they are influenced by people, but they're not. You know, they're not conscious. You know, they're not doing it nefariously necessarily. But then this information that is being that has been harvested can be taken to do somewhat nefarious things with and that's that's where it gets into the really scary part to me yeah so all that said uh i mean society's pretty cool i was gonna say we're hoping you all feel scared (laughs) if not of you know ghosts and ghouls of maybe you know cell phones and alexas right and really aren't those spirits in the machines uh you know are just our modern day uh, ghosts and ghouls you know we 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 progressed from wolves in the woods to uh you know to I- iphones and the aisles handbags. yeah <laughs> so uh happy halloween everybody watch over your shoulder because uh if you don't someone else will be anyways that's our show you can find the podcast at Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter, or you can email any questions, comments, or concerns to goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support your friendly neighborhood gobslugs, you can do so at patreon.com slash goblinlorepod. Goblin Lore is hosted by Hobbs Q, who you can find on Twitter at Hobbs Q. The show is written and co-hosted by Alex Newman, who can be found on Twitter at Mel underscore Chronicler. Engineering, editing, and production by Joe Redman, who you can find on Twitter at Lorethos. That's L-O-R-E Thos. Rights to our opening and closing music are held by Vintergotten and Cobalt Music. Links to their website in our show notes. Logo by Stephen Raphael on Twitter at Stephen Raffle. Goblin Lore is sponsored by Hipsters of the Coast, which you can find at hipstersofthecoast.com or at hipstersmtg on Twitter. Thank you all for listening, and remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. <laughs>